God, thank you um, for bringing Greg here safely and for all that you've put on his heart that he's going to share with us. I pray that you'd um, open his mouth to, to articulate what you've put on his heart clearly and powerfully, and that we would see Jesus lifted up on the cross, lifted up on the throne, that he would be glorified in our hearts and that we would be transformed as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. It's good to be here again this Sunday. Um, my family sends greetings. We had some house guests, and so my wife trundled them off to um, our own home church, and I came up here. So it's good to be with you, um, also family uh, to me, after this many times of being here. Uh, as we were worshiping, I was uh, obviously looking at the screen, but it occurred to me that there's this cross hanging over the pulpit. And if you go to any Christian church anywhere in the world, over the last centuries, it's exactly what you would find, a cross at the center of the church. And if you think about it for just a second, it's creepy, <laughs> right? The cross was um, an executioner's tool in the Roman Empire. If Jesus had lived in this Oh, like 50 years ago and died, we would have an electric chair hanging over the pulpit on a Sunday or a rifle or a shotgun. Now, of course, you'd probably just have two or three syringes hanging there over us like an odd macabre chandelier. Why is it that the Christian church has focused its primary symbol, the one thing that unites all Christians across denominations and creeds and traditions in every country to be a symbol of execution? a symbol of death. It's gruesome. There's so many other symbols we could have chosen. We could have chosen the fish symbol, an early uh, use of iconography in the Roman Empire where Christians were trying to be a little bit more hidden, and so they used a fish because the Greek word for fish could be um, an acronym for Jesus Christ, Savior, and Lord. We could have used a peacock, which is what some you often find in the catacombs at Rome, which um, reminded people of eternal life. It could have been a grapevine. Right, something fruity, something living, something lovely, but instead we've chosen the symbol of death, and we've done so because it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that defines and distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world. It's the one thing that's distinctive about us. Many religions proclaim that they can offer us life. Many other faiths promise us abundance now. Christianity is the only faith that worships the God who dies rises again and reigns. And that's what the Christian belief statement we're focusing on this week at church is focused on. And that's why I've chosen the passage of Revelation 5, because rather than take one of Paul's expositions of what happened on the cross or one of the gospel accounts, um, I wanted to draw us into the most worshipful experience of reflecting on Christ's death and resurrection that I could think of. And that's Revelation 5, where in the book of Revelation, you get every theological statement of the Old and New Testament summed up in this really graphic and beautiful picture. And so to set the scene a little bit, John, one of the last apostles, is in exile on the island of Patmos. And he's worshiping alone in exile on a Sunday morning, as Christians do, because when you worship on Sunday, you're never alone. Right? You're joining with the worldwide church and being here in North America, we're at the tail end of it because uh, 12 or 14 hours ago, our brothers and sisters in Asia uh, were already rising and proclaiming the goodness of the Lord. Um, as we were sleeping and some of us were waking, especially those with very small children, Europe and Africa was worshiping, um, Latin America had already started worshiping. We're coming at the tail end. And four hours from now, as um, 
Some of us are uh, doing yard work and others of us are enjoying the luxury of a Sunday nap. <laughs> California, Hawaii will be bringing their praises to the Lord, right? Bringing kind of a close to the day. So you're never alone in your worship. And as John's worshiping, he has this vision of the risen Christ appears before him. He says, look, I'm always with you. I've never forsaken you. And here's the story I want you to tell the seven churches that used to pastor um, and serve as bishop over in um, modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor. But then John gets caught up. He says, in this vision, and he sees the throne of God um, centering all of the universe uh, in heaven. And uh, the four living creatures, which seem to represent creational powers, and 24 elders who may represent all the people of God gathered before him, worship the creator. And he says, I looked at the throne, I saw the one who was sitting there, and he never names him because there's this kind of awestruck reticence about naming your God. He says, I saw a scroll in his hand, and that's where you pick up in chapter 5. As this vision continues, then I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, could open the scroll or even look inside of it. I wept and wept because there was no one found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And it's striking to me that as John looks at the scroll that was held in the hand of God, there's no one worthy that they can find in all of creation to open the scroll, right? The challenge goes out. Who is worthy? And it's not an issue of who has enough power to open the scroll or who's mighty enough to wrest it from God's hands and open it for us. It's a question of worth. Who's worthy? Who's adequate morally and personally to do this, right? Of sufficient moral excellence and personal statue to unveil God's revelation, to let us know what God wants to tell us. And the challenge goes out, not just who is worthy, but it goes out on everybody above the earth, on, on the earth and below the earth, right? Nobody in the heavens is sufficient to open this. There's not a being on the earth who can say, I'm worthy to open it, and certainly nobody who's preceded us in time is worthy to open it. Nobody is worthy to open this scroll and to open this revelation of God. This is worth noting and pausing on for a second, right? Because we live in a world filled with opposing gods and world religions not just kind of big character gods, the gods of other religious faiths and traditions, but it's a world of really small, miserly, niggardly gods too, right? Money and sex and power, consumerism, capitalism, sensuality and license, small, chaotic voices that are just a, um, demanding our attention. Every time you turn on a TV and listen to an advertisement, anytime you open up your internet browser and an ad pops up, appealing to some sort of... Um, passion or desire of yours, right? All these small forces want your allegiance, want your following, want what you have. They want you. And what John seems to be asserting at this point in the vision is none of those, none of those things, none of those principalities, none of those powers, no other god, no other force, no other philosophy, no other commitment can reveal what God really wants us to know. They're shadows of the truth. They're distortions of what God actually intends. And it's interesting, John hears this challenge, who's worthy to open the scroll? And no other God can open it. No other power or force on earth can open it. Nobody who's preceded us can open it. And he weeps over this. 
He's so broken and so desperate to hear what God wants to reveal that when he realizes nobody can reveal God, he just starts to sob. And I wonder, uh, just to pause again, in a culture where most of us have four or five Bibles that we can choose from, we're coming to church on a Sunday um, to worship, to be preached to, to respond, uh, is as much habit as it is commitment if at some point we get a little jaded by the sheer abundance and opportunity and ease with which we have God's word. But for John, when he realizes God's word is not available to us, we don't know who he is, he just starts to weep. And I wonder if in part as a church, as you think about missional communities, as you think about um, taking advantage of the new building that you now have, which is beautiful and glorious, um, if we're able to hear the weeping of the world as it cries out for the knowledge of who God is. the experience that helped translate that for me was I was here, uh, I was reading um, the words of Gordon McLean, who was an urban missiologist that worked with youth in Canada, and he once said, why is it that when we think about teenage promiscuity, we think of it as lust, not loneliness? And when you think of every advertisement that you're confronted with, you could live longer, look, uh, look better, smell better, be more intelligent. What's the inward longing, the cry that people are expressing? to be valued, to be loved, to be transcendent, to be powerful, to be self-controlled, to have independence, that in the end, all of those reflect some desperate longing to know that we're cherished, to know that we will be taken care of, to know that our futures are secure. How do we hear the cry of the world in those moments? Well, as John weeps, one of the elders comes to him and says, look, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And he finally hears, then, John, of one who is worthy, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the assertion seems to be this, right? The Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament, is worthy to open and to make known the revelation of God. The promises that were promised to David, who is of the tribe of Judah, are going to come to fulfillment. God is going to restore his world through his promised Messiah who's going to come from David's land. He's going to reestablish his reign and rule. It's all going to be good, John. He will reveal the truth to you. And John, looking for this Messiah, this anointed one who he's been told about, who would return Israel from its spiritual exile and reclaim the Davidic kingdom and restore a sense of peace, is completely shocked because he doesn't see a kingly lion filled with strength and power. Instead, then I saw a lamb standing as as it had been slain. You see... What's going on here is he doesn't see a lion because, you see, Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. And if you think about it, what greater contrast could there be to a great lion? Right? Strength and power, autonomy and authority. And when John looks to see what the lion is like, he sees an animal that you associate with sacrifice with the regular sacrifices of God's people appealing to God that their sins would be forgiven, that their sins would fall on this animal instead and God would forgive them. An animal that you'd raise in your home that was powerless, unable to defend itself. An animal that was dying in your place and on your behalf in the great sacrifices, particularly around the Day of Atonement. Yet, it's exactly appropriate, because what we believe as Christians is that Jesus triumphs, 
that Jesus reigns and rules, that Jesus is the one who reveals what God is like specifically because he died in our place and on our behalf through his sacrifice and death on the cross. Um, the technical term uh, we use for this is substitutionary atonement, that Christ dies in our place and on our behalf because who should have been punished by God for their sins? We should. Yet God, in his great mercy, takes the form of a human being, becomes a human being, and accepts the punishment due humanity in our place and on our behalf. And the beautiful thing about that is that then God fully demonstrates his character at that moment. Because God demonstrates his holiness and justice by executing judgment on sin. There's a God who said he didn't care what sin would be a monster, not a God. Right? He wouldn't be worthy of our worship. He wouldn't be worthy of our allegiance if he said, you know, it doesn't really matter. Mother Teresa and Pol Pot, come, eat together. It's going to be great up in heaven. None of it matters. The suffering of those of you who were oppressed and damaged by sin, too bad. Get over it. We're all together at the big table. Instead, God says, I hate sin. I hate what it does to my people, and I'm going to execute my judgment against it. But knowing that we couldn't survive that, God says, I'm going to take your place and experience the punishment myself so that you see his mercy and his love, his incredible wisdom to say, I can demonstrate both my justice and my mercy simultaneously without violating a single bit of who I am. One of the challenges about believing in substitutionary atonement is people said, isn't this basically co uh, cosmic child abuse? That God sends his own child and then punishes him in our place? And this is where the doctrine of the Trinity really matters to us. Because it's not God executing judgment against a second party who is his son who is distant from himself, but the Godhead itself, three in one, so that it's God himself who decides to do it, God himself who actually experiences it, and then God the Holy Spirit who allows us to embrace it. Substitutionary atonement is what distinguishes, I want to suggest, Christianity from every other world religion. In half of the religions of the world, it's really just through the sheer exercise of your own virtue that you begin to get ahead. Really, Buddhism um, and Hinduism uh, work on that. In um, Islam, it's largely, well, Islam and um, Judaism, it's largely the mercy of God unexplained. In Christianity, what you have is a fully just God and a fully merciful God who's absolutely consistent with himself. And that's why Jesus reveals who God is and can reveal the revelation of God, because when you see Jesus in action in the New Testament, loving the sinner, reproving the self-righteous, restoring creation to wholeness, bringing life and health to people, you see what God is like. You see what God is like when you see him die in our place and on our behalf to demonstrate how deeply he loves us and cares for us. And you see what God is like in his justice and his holiness when he says, I will not tolerate sin, but I'll find a way to reconcile myself to the sinner. Here's the implication for us. I want to suggest if there's no other being in heaven on earth or below the earth who is worthy to open this scroll except for Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, then we need to be unembarrassed about arguing for the uniqueness of Christ among other gods when we talk to our friends and family, when we talk to the people at our workplaces and our neighborhoods. Right? That's what makes us really uncomfortable. Do you really think Jesus Christ is the only way? Isn't that really intolerant? Isn't that really hateful? Isn't it really small-minded? And what we have to say is, it's only intolerant if it's untrue. Amen. If it's truth, then it's the hard line of truth, the same way that smoking will kill you from cancer in the long term. 
that, well, we can all go on, we all know, right, because we've all raised children, or our children ourselves and have hurt our parents, there are easy, there are clear consequences to our actions. Truth isn't intolerant, it's truth. And what this passage points out is that not merely should we be unembarrassed by declaring that Jesus Christ is the only way, we should actually be positively reveling and worshiping at that truth. Worthy is a lamb who was slain. So what's this lamb like? Let's look at the next three verses. John says, look, I saw a lamb looking as it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll from the right hand of him uh, who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You were worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Now, the lamb who was slain, he says, was standing right at the throne in the place where before John had seen God. It's clearly saying this lamb reigns. And he's surrounded by all of creation. And when the lamb takes the scroll, when the lamb reveals who God is, the 24 elders sing a song, not about the majesty of the creator, which was the song that you would have heard sung in Revelation 4, um, which was, uh, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. But instead, they celebrate the Redeemer. Because creation can tell us a lot about what God is like, about his holiness, his power, and his self-existence. But creation alone can't tell you about God's love or his mercy. Our knowledge about God is, via creation is limited, uh, our knowledge about God through Jesus is unlimited. And the song celebrates what Jesus did and what Jesus was accomplished. Why was the lamb worthy? Because the lamb was slain, right? Rather than an image of conquest, of power, the lion, John sees a slaughtered lamb, uh, which has power. It had seven horns, which was a sign of power, but was slain as a sacrifice. And the lamb stands at the center of the throne, triumphing because it was sacrificed in our place and on our behalf, right? It should bring to mind um, Philippians 2. Uh, when, when Paul uh, encourages a, a church divided by conflict, let your mind be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, though being a very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But instead, taking on the form of servant, he became obedient even to the point of death, death on, death on a cross. And for that reason, right, Paul says, Jesus Christ will be lifted up and will be the name that, um, that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Because the lamb was slain, he now reigns with God. Let me pause there. It's interesting that Paul reflects on the crucifixion to argue about a specific way that we should live. Looking at a church that was divided by conflict, that was struggling to remain faithful, he said, your attitude and your mindset should be the same as that of Christ Jesus as he approached and endured the cross. The cross isn't really an abstract thing that we think about what Jesus did, but it's actually a model for the way that we are supposed to live now. And Paul argues that if you follow the way of the cross, it's a way that should involve deep humility, obedience to God regardless of the cost, an embrace of suffering on behalf of other people, 
in hopes and in complete confidence that one day God will vindicate the choices that you make. So that God will receive the glory and the honor that he's due and that Jesus Christ will be the name that is above every name. Right? That's why we've said before at church that it's not enough for us just to be nice people, but we actually have to name the name of Jesus as we go about our missional communities, as we live where we are at. Because even though if all people see is that we do good things, but we don't name the name of Jesus, then we receive the praise and glory that God is due. Because people go, wow, what a generous, self-serving, I mean, sorry, um, self-sacrificial, service-oriented group of people they are rather than how is it that their God compels them to be so kind-hearted, generous, and self-sacrificial? Not only does the cross then offers a model and a way of living, contrast that perhaps with um, other ways that Christians have used position or power to get what they want. We're about to move into a new election cycle, or we're kind of in the midst of the end of the primary, beginning of the general election cycle. Listen to the Christian voices around you in the media and in publications and ask, is the attitude in which they speak, does their demeanor and their tone reflect, let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, though he had equality with God, did not consider equality something to be grasped, but instead sacrificed himself on a cross? Or is it an assertion of power? Is it an assertion of boldness, of conquest? Let me also suggest that if Jesus Christ is the model for us on his cross, he offers us great hope for those of us who've suffered or see great suffering. Um, what does it mean that the God we worship reveals himself by dying on a cross and experiencing pain? John Stott uh, was a great English pastor who died um, just a year or so ago. Um, and in his book, The Cross of Christ, which is really the best book I've ever read on the cross, he once said, I never myself could believe in God if it were not for God on the cross. The only God I believe in is the one that Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In a real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I've stood in many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world, but each time after a while I've had to turn away. And in imagination I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There's still a question mark against human suffering, but over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in a world as ours. Why is the lamb worthy? Not only because he died self-sacrificially, but because he redeemed a multi-ethnic people for God as well. The amazing thing about the lamb who was slain, John argues in this vision, is that the Passover lamb, which was designed for the salvation of the Jewish people at the Exodus, has now become the salvation of all people in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. You were worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you have purchased uh, humanity for God from every tribe and language, people and nation. 
Because Christ died in our place and on our behalf, he allows us to cross the dividing wall of hostility that divides Jew from Gentile, slave from free, male from female, um, barbarian and citizen. One of the ways I saw that happen was at um, Urbana 93. Um, Peter Cha, a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, former staff worker with university, was speaking on the power of racial reconciliation that comes from the cross. And after Urbana that year, they had a conference for international students. And so this requires a little knowledge of Asian history, but I hope you'll bear with me. Um, as most of you know, uh, prior to and during World War II, Japan ruled much of Asia in a way which was quite brutal um, and quite devastating. And so, um, so convicted were they by the reality of God's great forgiveness on the cross and the need for us to then confess our sins to other people. During that international student conference, the Japanese delegation, as every nationality was given a time to present something, came up on stage and did this really incredibly thing. Because if you know anything about the Japanese, you know they're highly concerned about saving face and about decorum. But they fell to their knees in front of the entire audience facing the Korean delegation, which was another large delegation at the time, and they said, we want to ask for your forgiveness for the sins our grandparents and great-grandparents committed against your grandparents and great-grandparents while Japan occupied much of Korea from the you know, teens through uh, the 40s. We know we uh, used your women as prostitutes. We slaughtered your villages. We wreaked devastation on your communities. We pray that um, you would forgive us as we confess our sins to you. Well, they left the stage and confusion broke out immediately. Because what do you do with a confession like that? These Japanese students, this was 1993, were born sometime in the late 70s. <clears throat> they were not parties to this. Their parents weren't even parties to what happened. Conversation broke out. What should we do? The next night, it was the Korean delegation's turn to present something. And so they had huddled for hours, prayed all through the night. How do we respond to a request for forgiveness from people who historically have so oppressed our people that even to this day, if you know some Korean Americans, some of their parents will still not buy a Japanese model car out of memory of what happened. The Korean delegation came up. Everybody kind of held their breath. And they turned to the Japanese delegation and they said, of course we forgive you. As people who've received so generously from Jesus Christ forgiveness for our own sins, how could we possibly withhold forgiveness from anybody else? And then they did this really astounding thing. If that weren't astounding enough, they fell to their knees and said, now would you forgive us? As a people, we've harbored bitterness, hatred, and resentment against you and your people for the things that your great-grandparents and grandparents committed against our great-grandparents and grandparents. As you've received so generously from Jesus Christ at the cross, would you forgive us in turn? Well, reconciliation broke out of that conference. Turks and Greeks began to meet together. At that point, um, British and Irish students were meeting together. I mean, the whole conference turned into a mass session of confession and reconciliation and forgiveness. And to this day, there are organizations in Japan and Korea that exist because of Urbana um, 93 designed to promote reconciliation between Koreans and Japanese. Why is the lamb worthy? Because he redeemed a multi-ethnic people for God, and the Passover lamb has now become the Passover lamb for all people. Why is the lamb worthy? Not just because he died in our place and on our behalf and reconciled the new people for God, but he's made us to be a kingdom and priests for his God. We are the place here in this room 
as a church and in your missional communities where God's reign should be experienced, where as they see us in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods, as you in, engage with other people in our activities that are enjoyable and interesting to you, that people go, the only motivation I can explain the way they live and the way they serve is because they serve a lamb who was slain. That's what it means to be God's kingdom, that when we work and do great work for the glory of God and not just for promotion, when we care about our neighbors, not just because it's a good thing to do for our communities, but because God has compelled us to do so, when we pray and intercede for one another, to be priests for one another, to ask for God's healing and hand to forgive us, when Anne prays um, during that um, interlude between musical worship, we're serving as the priests of God lifting up his people to him and inviting God's presence into the lives of the people around us. It means we become a place which extends grace. If Jesus Christ dies in our place and on our behalf, then no sin is unforgivable. Nothing you could do could be so terrible or twisted that God can't forgive it. It's not like he doesn't already know. Christ is worthy so not only is he worthy compared to all other gods and because of what he's accomplished for us, but he's so worthy that we worship and we witness. And that's what the last three verses of this chapter are about. Right? John hears what Jesus Christ has accomplished. Then he looks and hears the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then he heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. All creation worships the lamb who was slain. You have the angelic response, right? Seven attributes of the worthiness of the lamb, which seem parallel to the seven attributes of God described in uh, chapter four. And there's an inescapable conclusion that when you look at the lamb, you actually see what God is like. And the lamb sits at the center of the throne. He reigns with God. And that's why we worship not just a God who dies in our place and on our behalf, but we worship a God who was then raised from the dead as God vindicated his choice, who ascends into heaven and rules at God's right hand. This wasn't a lamb who's like, oh, what a terrible martyr experience it was for him. But instead, a God who dies and rises again and now reigns and rules. That's the God we worship. And it gives us confidence then, right? That was the point of that song, before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever pleads for me. We have nothing to be afraid of before God. The one who died in our place and on our behalf stands right next to God and says, this one I died for too. So we approach God not with shame or embarrassment, but with instead great boldness. In the same way, um, you all know, um, if you know me, I have an almost four-year-old who um, recently we've been catching lying to us fairly often. She'll take three jelly beans and not two when she gets a treat. She'll drop something and then blame her younger sister, who at pre-two isn't quite verbal enough to defend herself. Thankfully, she's really um, obvious about it and usually collapses into the truth very quickly. And what's both irritating and delightful for me is that as soon as she knows she's caught, she goes, sorry, Papa, so, so, so sorry, so, 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 so sorry. And then she thinks she's done. And in some ways she is, right? As much as I want her to understand why it's bad to lie, I'm predisposed to forgiving her. And she knows it. And so rather than being scared, she just throws herself on my mercy. A little too quickly in my mind. 
But she does it with great boldness because she knows in my heart of hearts, right, in the throne of my heart, she's right there. And if Jesus Christ is at the throne of God himself, reigning and ruling as the ascended Lord, we have nothing to be afraid of. So I think that's why Martin Luther said, right, sin boldly, but receive God's forgiveness more boldly still. And then all creation rings out with praise. Um, because Jesus Christ has triumphed. One of the strains of thought around the crucifixion and death of Jesus is uh, called Christus Victor, that God is um, trouncing the powers of evil at that moment, right? Completely defangs death, destroys the power and dominion of Satan over his people, and is redeeming it. And that's absolutely what's going on because Jesus Christ dies in our place and on our behalf. This is why, in the end, the truthfulness and integrity of our worship here will be marked by the quality of our witness out there. Or to steal a line from John Piper, which is really the best line of his book um, on sovereignty and um, evangelization, which I can't remember offhand, missions exist because worship doesn't in the mouths and lives of other people. The reason we engage in mission and evangelism is because other people do not yet worship Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. And it's really just the inverse side. Everything that you sing here, you should be able to say out there. Until one day we pray, all people around us will sing and say the same things that we do in this church because it's true for them. And that greater numbers of people will declare that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord to the glory of the Father. Well, right, it's what it says in Philippians 2. Every tongue will confess that in our prayer is that the vast majority will confess it with great joy and great delight as their hopes and faith have now become sight, rather than with horror and despair that what they've denied for so long has now proven to be inescapably true. And the four living creatures really respond with this, with a great amen. Yes. Is Christ the only way? Yes. Amen. Is he worthy of our worship? Amen. Yes. Is he worthy of our witness to all of creation? Amen. Yes. That's why we have that creepy cross hanging above us. We don't think about it often. It's often merely a decoration in a chapel. But in my greatest moments of despair around my own sin, in the times where I think of my friends who are in deep pain and struggle, when I think about the call not just to be worshipers, but also to be witnesses, I look at the cross that hangs at the front of every church I've ever worshipped in and expect I will ever worship in. And remember, I worship and I witness. I remain steadfast in the experience of pain as well as my own sinfulness because we worship a Jesus Christ who died in our place and on our behalf who was raised again, vindicated by God, and now reigns at his right hand. The cross is good news, as creepy and as macabre as it really may be. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, how could we ever do justice to the um, good news of your death and resurrection? Um, and so we turn to both song and prayer and lives of obedience and hope um, that you would glorify yourself. Thank you for dying in our place and on our behalf. Thank you for revealing what God is like, holy and just, merciful and loving. Thank you for showing us what it means to live as Christians and for giving us good news to witness to the world. The lamb who is slain is worthy of all power, wisdom, honor, and praise. Amen. <laughs>